Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam, he's Andy, and before we get started on writing, I've got to turn back in my my trip report card, because as you know, I came back from our hiatus. I went on my trip to to España. How was your jaunt across the pond? My jaunt across the pond was actually great. You know, I, I had, I used to love flying. I used to love it. Um, just the... I don't know, just the idea of not only going to a new place and the excitement from that, but I used to love sitting in a seat, putting in my headphones, catching up on whatever new movies or television shows I hadn't had a chance to watch on the seat back on the television in front of you, and just kind of get to relax for a little bit. And then I had some really bad experiences. I've talked to you multiple times about my experience in Santiago, where we flew through a, a, a dust devil and the plane yeah. went sideways and shit. Um, so... I was out on planes for a little while, but this on this trip we took four flights, two there, two back, and I am back in love with flying again. We had very little turbulence. Um, we had pretty good food on the flight. Shouts out to American Airlines for upping their food game. Um, I didn't get beat up by a stewardess. I didn't get pulled off the flight. There was one guy that got drunk and tried to fight a stewardess, um, and then he had to get very carried nice. off the plane, so that was... So shout out to him. Uh, I, I upped my game as well because I bought a Switch and I had so I had video games with me, which was I hadn't had that in a long time. The rise of high quality handheld video games has been a, a revolution for travel, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, it's been awesome. So I'm, I'm never going back. I know that I'm I'm in my 30s, but hey, you know what? I got to embrace my inner child. It, it helps pass the time, so I'm going to keep doing that. Um, you know, I guess there was a few travel stories. I guess I could bring up that would have varying levels of interest, varying levels of humble brag. But I want to keep this relatively wide in terms of audience appeal. Um, And maybe this makes me sound like a spoiled tourist, but I'll go ahead and throw this out there. Let me ask you a a question, uh, both to the audience, but you specifically, Andy. If you were hiring a bartender, what would you say are the few drinks that they've got to know how to make? What comes oh, to mind? Dude, I'm, I'm such a poor person to ask this question because I, I don't drink. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. Uh, I, I guess like the the go-tos are like they need to be able to make like the base that that you can build a whole bunch of other drinks off of, right? So like your standard martinis, all your – you know, your old-fashioned, your – that's – you've you known okay. the limits you, of my alcohol knowledge. You, you, you passed the test because what I wanted you to say is old-fashioned. The old nice, fashioned, uh, good. <laughs> depending on my mood, old fashioned. If I feel a little bit something a little bit lighter and fruitier, I, will, I like an old fashioned. If I want something a little bit darker, if I'm kind of in the uh, the Guinness mood, I'll, I'll get a, I'll get a Manhattan. But I like I like whiskey drinks, and sure. I struggled finding that in Spain, and I'm still blown away by the lack of ability to make mixed drinks in some of these towns. You know, we, it's not like we went to these like small villages that didn't have any you know whiskey selections we, we were at we were in some major cities that are known for their gastronomy we went to these bars that had you know wood grain everything with liquor selection behind the bartender and i had quite the experience trying to get an old-fashioned fascinating yeah we, we went into this um five-star hotel we weren't staying there but it was right on this plaza and very bougie um down to you know the the it's kind of place where like you you feel uncomfortable sitting on the couch that's available in the lobby like you just feel like you're out of place no matter what 
we went into their bar, gorgeous bar, very Biltmore in style. And we, we walk up to the bartender and they have, like I said, they've got whiskey in the background. They have all sorts of different spirits in the background. And uh, I asked for an old fashioned. I got a really interesting answer back. The bartender, again, dressed to the nines in this ritzy place, says, we don't have whiskey. And I said, you don't? And he was like, no. And I and I pointed to it behind him, and he turned around, and he still didn't see it. And I pointed to one of about eight whiskey bottles that were right behind him. And he was like, oh. So I guess he didn't really understand what that was. And then he was like, okay, well, we don't make. I was like, really? He's like, no. At this point, there's a line forming behind me, so I just said, okay, whatever, get me an Aperol Spritz, whatever. And they know how to make an Aperol Spritz, which seems like a rarer drink to me than yeah. uh, old-fashioned. <laughs> is it just that the, the, an old-fashioned is like a uniquely American cocktail? Because I know they were, they're like invented in, in New York, and like, like, do you think that's it? Like, it's just a cultural, that never made it over there kind of thing, or like... So that's what my wife suggested, and I am of the opinion that no, because again, humble brag, I've ordered an old-fashioned in a few different countries so like i don't think in, that that's in western case, europe right? so like like yeah, a, yeah. you could get one in france and italy but not in spain yeah and I've, I've ordered it in asia well i know asia asia has significant whiskey culture for sure like i know like japan makes like the best whiskey on earth now apparently yeah yeah um but anyways uh so the next time i order it and and at this point it's kind of like a a mission of mine to be like okay now i want an old-fashioned now that i was told i can't have it i need right. it right <laughs> <laughs> on, on general principle, yeah. <laughs> like the second place I go to, they've got the again the spirits in the background, and I you go to this wood grain bar, and I ask for an old fashioned, and they tell me that they don't carry whiskey, and they were correct; they actually did not carry whiskey. They carried Jesus. everything else, but not whiskey. And I was like, okay, that's really strange. The third bar I went to, perhaps the weirdest experience, maybe the most unforgivable experience if if you're a bartender. So. I see the whiskey. I told my wife I'm going to do it. She's like, don't do it. You're going to just get this. <laughs> so I had to. I order an old-fashioned. Of course, the lady doesn't know how to make one. That's okay. I I try to explain to her how to make it. Then one of, one of her friends comes up, another bartender. Does old-fashioned? Okay, okay. Just whiskey, uh, sugar, orange. I was like, yes, yes, that's it, that's it. So, I, so I, she's naming off some of the ingredients. So I was like, she knows how to make one. She comes back to me. She says, do you want um, pre-made or traditional is what she says or or some, something of that nature. And she holds up what looks like a syrup bottle. So I'm assuming she's offering to pour this pre-made syrup in with whiskey and make yeah. like what tastes like a similar old fashioned. So I said, no, I want traditional. If you can make it. She says, OK. Five minutes later, she comes back to my table with a glass. And I swear to God, it was a. This was a mug like what you would have in like a stein in europe filled to the brim with what looks like a mimosa pure orange <laughs> oh god and <laughs> and i and over there in in spain they they have really good orange juice that they, they make all natural yeah. orange juice they get real good orange better oranges than we have like no pulp and they throw it in a machine and they make just the most amazing juice you've ever had they pour in about 80% of that and then 20% of whiskey and made me a whiskey mimosa. And <laughs> it was expensive um, because, you know, they charged me for what they thought they were making me and not what I asked for. And right. 
I just had to I had to take the L and just drink that. I was sipping on that for about thirty minutes. And then I turned to my wife. I was about a third done with it, and I was like, I can't. I'm tapping. Yeah, out. you're like, why like, am I doing this? <laughs> this is so bad. So uh, I was over three and trying to trying to get the world's most popular uh, cocktail in cocktail bars in Spain. So uh, I just thought that was an interesting little tidbit. <laughs> Do better, Spain. <laughs> yeah. Everything else was great. I, in fact, when we left, I my wife was like, "I could retire here," and I was like, "I could too." We just got to teach their bartenders how to make a drink. So, um, I'm done sounding snobby. I want to move on to something else. I sound snobby about. We got a lot of feedback, some negative feedback on our on our billionaire hypothetical. Um, people pushing back on some of the states that I chose that I would for sure be down to move to and and stay landlocked in for a billion dollars. A lot of people pointed out that I was unfairly taking points off Tennessee. They were saying Nashville's tight. They've got good lakes. You get, you know, you gave North Carolina and Ohio outs. You need to give that to Tennessee. A lot of people said that I would dunk too hard on Louisiana, which we've talked about that offline. I I feel pretty strongly. We were fair to Louisiana. Uh, There are not many great places to spend a billion dollars in Louisiana, but look, man, the Gulf coast is just rough. All right. Like once you like between Texas and Florida, is is a tough sell for me like the the louisiana mississippi alabama thing i know some people will there are some people that like if you gave them you know a free house on in gulf shores they'd be that that'd be heaven for them for me right that's not how i'm trying to go out like right yeah and, and and i said this in the in the episode if we're talking about i can i can wait to take this money until i'm like 60 or 70 then yeah, All those way different are fair game, way different equation. Yeah, for sure. Give me a house in Gulf Coast, a badass mansion in Birmingham, where they've got a bunch of golf clubs, and then maybe like a box seat to Alabama football. Like I could make that work, right? But yeah, for right sure. now hard, hard to do. One other state I wanted to give a shout out to that I was pretty unfair to. The more I think about it, pretty limited in places you could live. But as a billionaire, I think I could split time between Vegas and and Lake Tahoe and do the Nevada swing think i could do it yeah i'm so anti-vegas man like i could do tahoe for sure i i am oh man the idea of living in vegas like the last time me and the boys were in vegas we went off strip to go to this pancake place that like several people i know raved about like oh you're going to vegas you have to go to mr pancake made the mistake of leaving the strip which once you go off strip in vegas it's it's literally lubbock dude it's literally lubbock with the strip like that's what las vegas is so we went to this Mr. Pancake. It was worse than an IHOP. And I was just like, why did I listen to anyone? <laughs> and they told me to leave the Strip in Las Vegas. This place is horrible. <laughs> I fucking hate it here. <laughs> like, Right outside the Strip is rough. But if you go way outside the Strip, there's some really yeah, nice I'm, areas. Yeah, I'm sure there are like, you know, country clubs and shit where the rich people of Vegas live that are pretty. And I love the desert. I could do Santa Fe and stuff like that. But yeah, man, no. Vegas is just not my town. It's not built for me. New Mexico is another one I guess I forgot to name that I, I, I immediately wrote off New Mexico and you and I had a deep dive on the things you could do there. You can make it work. It's got stuff. Yeah. Santa Fe is dope. Skiing. It's it's mountains. easy to just default to like the worst version. Of, like, yeah, like it wouldn't be fun to live in Hobbs, but like <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. So right, right. Exactly. So shouts out to those states that we we unfairly wrote off. I feel like that pretty much rounds out the list. Uh, if you want to go back and hear the full episode, it's up there. Um, let's get into the topic for today, the actual topic, not my travels, Hell not yeah. what states are shitty and which ones aren't. Let's talk about The Departed. Um, what do you think? 
I love this movie. Uh, this is in the elite trio of Boston movies with Goodwill Hunting in the town. Uh, that is my elite trifecta of Boston movies. And then the the great tragedy of Boston movies, which is Black Mass, which should have been a great movie and is is not. It is a bad movie. Um, but The Departed is amazing. I think, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about, like, remakes of, of like, uh, live-action anime remakes and, like, taking other cultures' art and, like, trying to, like, Hollywoodize it. Make it better? Yeah, like an attempt to make it no. better for sure. I think <laughs> no, the Departed I was, is. I was being facetious. It, they almost uh, always fail in that. In that, absolutely. I, I think the Departed is like the best possible version of that that idea. So the Departed is basically a complete remake of a movie from Hong Kong called Internal Affairs. It has the exact same plot. The exact same dynamics exist. The the du- the two way mole situation. One being kind of a father son mafia boss situation. Um, and Scorsese took this movie that he was obviously a huge fan of, and that movie's way more of a Hong Kong action movie. It's, like, very shallow. It's, like, the characters are not nearly as interesting. It's way more about the action. Um, and I think we see Scorsese take this movie he really liked and, like, create his own, like, really artistically beautiful piece of cinema out of that, like, out of the pieces of that. And there are two... Totally distinct works um, that are related, but exist totally independently, and they both have tremendous value. So I think, that in that sense, The Departed is like the greatest success story as far as like an homage or a remake of a film. Um, also, just like one of the best casts I think you could ever you could ever line oh, up. This my is God. like yeah. peak uh, DiCaprio, Scorsese at the peak of his powers, uh, Matt Damon doing. Probably my, my favorite role of his, maybe ever. Um, Agreed. Even the supporting characters are incredible. Um, this was a year where DiCaprio did Blood Diamond and The Departed, and he got the Oscar for Blood Diamond and lost the Best Actor to Idi uh, to um, the dude that played Idi Amin uh, in The Last King of Scotland, which I don't think is a bad loss. Um, but he was just like turning in absolute bangers at this point uh, in his career. So, yeah, man, I love this movie. This is like, I think this is one of the top five to seven like organized crime movies and definitely the best Boston movie in my opinion. Yeah, um, I don't think anything you said I, I disagree hard with. I did want to throw out a few other potential Boston movies. Um one that comes to mind uh, is Social Network. Takes place at Harvard for most of the time. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I don't know if I call it like a Boston movie because like it's Cambridge, Boston, and they're out of there by like the end of the first act. But yeah, certainly the beginning is Boston adjacent. I'll give you that. Um, this is one where they go back and forth to Boston a lot. I don't know I would call this a great movie, but it's very, very good and, and certainly very entertaining. 21. Yeah, very fun. I, I fucks with 21 pretty heavy. Weird relationship with that movie. That's a movie where if they made it today, they'd get in some trouble. The real-life version of that movie, everyone involved is Asian. 
and <laughs> when they decided to make the movie, oh. they just were like, no, <laughs> everyone's going to be Not anymore. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's strange. It's a great, it's, but again, it's such a great story. Like, that's so cool that someone did that in real life, and then they made this great movie out of it. So it's really cool. I was just like, why did they, you know, find, some, there's plenty of, oh, come on, man. Like, but yeah, agreed. That's a, that is a And that, that, and that would almost be a layup that, for Hollywood that in today's world right? that, you have this amazing story, you can, and you don't have to go out of your way to do anything in terms of like ex- uh, inclusivity. You just get right, exactly. Actual, like this is yeah, incredible absolutely. Story. So that would be a layup. Um, just just call up the whole cast of Crazy Rich Asians and see if they're busy, and then like, just like move yeah. their trailer. Like <laughs> exactly. Um, you said top five organized crime film. I would say it's it is top five in the sense that I was going to say it's higher, but the list, I mean, you, you have to put Goodfellas and Godfather 1 and 2 ahead of it. And then, so in that sense, it's probably number four or five. It's it's fighting with, like, Casino, like, that tier of, like, not, not elite, absolute, like, God tier, Godfather, but, like, elite for its decade type movie. Yeah. Another thing you said that I hard agree with is the cast. My wife has not watched it. And I told her who's in the cast, and she said, how have I never heard of this? Well, yeah, that, that's the kind <laughs> yeah, of thing that the cast would do. Um, and another thing I wanted to point out is I was watching it. It's been about five years since I've watched it. Between then and that, I've watched one of my favorite shows of all time, Death Note, and I did get vibes of the cat and mouse game of Death Note. And I thought to myself, I was like, man, if somebody absolutely loved The Departed and they can get over the fact that they're watching a, an anime, they would love Death yeah. Note. Because it, it, it is that similar, just like you got you have a crime thing going on, you've got a police thing going on, and whatever side wins wholly depends on who figures out whose identity first. That's the name of yeah. the game. And Scorsese just does so many cool like little things with this movie. Like there's a you can watch some great YouTube videos about how uh, any character that's going to die later in the film appears in a shot where there's an X somewhere in the background. So, like, uh, Sergeant Queenum in one scene, he's, like, talking, and the windows behind him have been boarded up with Xs across them, and then, like, later we see him die. Like, every character that eventually gets killed in this movie uh, appears in a shot where there's an that's X so in the cool. background behind them. Just, like, little things like Scorsese would only think of. It, of course, like all Scorsese movies, has, like, a great soundtrack that probably costs like a hundred million dollars of licensed music. It's like all like classic seventies rock music that like no one else can afford to put in their films, but Scorsese can. Um, yeah. I think it has one of the strongest openings to a movie. It grips you immediately. The, the monologue by Costello about like his life, the nature of good and evil, the nature of right and wrong. And like what it means to like be exist in this town of Boston, like Southie and like, like what what that does to someone why why they've chosen the life of crime and it ends on that great note where he's like you know when i was growing up we could either be priests or we could be uh criminals uh we could be cops or we could be criminals and he's like what i'm saying to you is when you're facing a loaded gun what's the difference and that is just like the perfect tagline for the entire film going forward um it's it's awesome i love it it's so great uh quick few notes on this before we jump into the plot itself 90 million dollar budget which, when you think about it in terms of the, some of the blockbusters coming out today, that does seem incredibly low. 
Well, just the salaries, man. Like, like just to get Damon, like if you wanted Damon and DiCaprio to do a movie together now, that's thirty-five, forty million by itself. <laughs> like, I don't know how you pay for snacks. Like, yeah, and, then, and you touched on this earlier, but some of the other cast members you've got: Marky Mark, Martin Sheen, Alec Baldwin. Anthony Anderson has like five lines. You know, yeah, two hundred ninety-one million box office definite hit uh honestly thought it could have even done more than that um crushed the oscars i mean it's it's a rated r movie so like it's there's a cap on how successful it's going to be from a box office standpoint but this murdered the oscars it murdered home rentals at the time um and it's remembered as an absolute classic i mean like i've never met a person that doesn't love the departed like this is a a near universally beloved movie basically every film critic that's worth his weight has this movie as a top three movie of 2006, which makes sense. Um, I mean, yeah, that's in this movie absolutely speaks for itself. It really, you, you know, it's one of the best crime movies of all time. It's one of the best movies that came out in the, in the aughts. It's not a debate. It's just, unless you absolutely hate any level of violence, tension, language, then you're going to love this movie. It's, it's, it's amazing. Let's get into the plot. Um, yeah. So Take this is, uh, again, this is, like, very much a movie centered around Boston and uh, specifically South Boston and the Irish Mafia, uh, I- Irish organized crime. The Italian Mafia kind of exists uh, in this world as well, but they're kind of, like, uh, derided the entire time as kind of, like, also rands. They call them guineas the whole time, which is very funny. I, I enjoy, as an Italian, I enjoy a good wop guinea joke myself, so I found that quite humorous. So... Um, it all centers around kind of uh, this kind of very sadistic Irish mob boss, Frank Costello, who I think looking at it now is a pretty uh, pretty clear homage to Whitey Bulger uh, at the peak of his powers. Um, Whitey Bulger was a little bit more of a street guy than Frank Costello is, but they are very much similar as far as like the level of like personal violence they're willing to carry out, like that kind of thing. So Frank Costello is the head of the Irish mob at Southie. And we're introduced to the fact that uh, Matt Damon's character, Colin Sullivan, grew up in Southie, and at a very young age, uh, his father was gone, was not present in his life, and he was kind of adopted as a pseudo-son by Frank Costello, and grew up uh, to join the Massachusetts State Police, uh, graduated at the top of his class, and is immediately uh, put into the elite plainclothes detective unit. Uh, and we know from the jump that he is a mole for Costello. So he is working for the biggest crime boss in the city, and he is the outside of the feds. He's like the highest ranking, you know, police detachment in the entire. That's going to be going after Frank Costello. Yeah, An important note there from a writing perspective that I, I loved was they do such a good job of of setting up the characters in such a short amount of time um, to the. I use it to the background track of 70s rock music. And it it's very fast-moving first act, but I did love how they slowed things down to show you DiCaprio's kind of joining of the, as you said, the, the plainclothes unit. The Stadies. Um, they, they do a great job of driving home the point that, hey, if you agree to do this, you are not going to have a police file. You are going to go to, you're going to go to prison for a little bit to get some street cred. And to like prove that you're not a mole, and then you're going to join back up with the crew, and you are. There's going to be 
you have no safety net. You have no parachute, right? You are you are there by yourself, and if anything goes wrong, you're up a creek a little bit. And I think that's a great job to set up that tension. And they and they do a good job also of reminding you that two or three times throughout the movie that if this screws up, DiCaprio is either going to get killed or he's going to go to prison for real. And I and the that. irony of the setup of the movie is that uh, DiCaprio is joining the police department for real. And yet his, like, background is like a poor kid uh, with a violent, you know, with some violence on his record from a juvenile standpoint. They immediately kind of accuse him. They're like, why are you pretending to be a cop? They're like, some guys want to pretend to be a cop. Some guys want to put a black guy's head through a plate glass window. Like, what's your, what is your point for being here? The irony there is that, like, obviously Matt Damon's character, Colin Sullivan, who is actually pretending to be a cop, is not questioned at all. Like, he's the shining golden boy of the class. Meanwhile, DiCaprio, who is there to actually, like, do good police work to get out of the life of, you know, kind of pseudo-criminality that his family's been involved in, um, he is immediately questioned by Queen and Indignum, played amazingly by, uh, uh, sorry, not Charlie Sheen, Martin Sheen, and... Mark Wahlberg in what I think is Mark Wahlberg's best role as Sergeant Dignam. He's like this incredibly dickish, super Boston, like the first line you hear from him, like Martin Sheen's like, you're a worker, you'll rise fast. And he's like, yeah, like a 12 year old's dick. Just like immediately, you know what you're getting with this guy. He is not cool with anybody. It's great. It's painful Bostonian aggression at its finest. It's so over the top. So... Uh, Colin, so Matt Damon's character, Colin Sullivan, is immediately kind of like re- red carpet rolled out, ushered into the plainclothes unit, immediately p- kind of promoted from the jump out of the academy into being a detective. And uh, DiCaprio's uh, character, Billy Costigan, is immediately kind of offered one option or no option, kind of. Like, you can either... Like they say, a year from now, you will be, you could be anything in the world, but you will not be a Massachusetts state police detective. So they're basically like, you can either do this special assignment at the end of which you'll be paid a lot of money tax free and you'll be a hero or, you know, you won't, but (laughs) you're not going to be a normal cop. Um, And like you mentioned, the offer is basically, we're going to put you in jail, probably for something violent because that would make sense. You are going to come out of jail, get with some street credibility, some dirt on you. And we're going to have you uh, infiltrate the Frank Costello organization to get us inside there because the fucked up Irish Omerta that they have has not enabled us to like make any significant progress against them. And so immediately, what's being set up here is kind of like your, uh, you know, two two chess knights that are <laughs> kind of attacking each other, right? Like we have a mole inside the state police detective inside the state police department that is now looking for a mole that is inside Costello's organization and a mole inside of Costello's organization that very quickly becomes aware of the fact that there is a mole inside the state police department and he's looking, so they're looking for each other. Um, Meanwhile, they're also both assigned to find themselves. So Frank is obviously like aware that there's a mole in his organization and he's like, hey, Bill, you got to help me find out who the rat is. And uh, Colin Sullivan is, you know, assigned by his mentor and boss, uh, Alec Baldwin, uh, to help find Costello's informant inside the state police department. So, like, very weird, like, dynamic of, like, both self-search and they're looking for each other. They don't know who each other are. Um, this is an interesting movie because the two kind of main characters that we're following do not encounter each other at all until the third act. Like, they never see each other. They never interact. 
Um, they both find out who each other are at the exact same moment. Which yeah, at the exact same moment. So um, while this is going on, uh, Billy Costigan has to, as part of his parole, see a police or see a psychologist, and that's uh, Dr. Madeline Madden. She's uh, a police psychologist, and because he's technically a statey, he is assigned a psychologist who deals with, like, police trauma. So she's the psychologist that deals with, like, officers when they go through an officer-involved shooting. She also happens to be dating (laughs) Colin Sullivan. So she is kind of the fulcrum around which these two guys are, like, constantly circling, even though they never directly interact. Um, There's also this weird undercurrent, and I, for the life of me, I never really figured out. Like, and as a, as the, the, I would say the the more expert writer in our of our duo here, you could tell me like what value you see in this. Through the entire movie, there's an underlying subplot of uh, Matt Damon's character not be able to get his dick up. Like they from ju- the jump, they they touch on it, yeah, and they levity. keep it's touching it through the entire movie. Yeah, it's very strange and off putting sometimes. Like the first day that they, Madeline and him wake up in their apartment and she's like, can we talk about last night? And he won't look at her. He's eating waffles at the table. She's like, you know, guys make too big a deal out of it. It's actually really common. He's like, I got to go to work. <laughs> she's like, get some pieces out. It's like, just Scorsese, dude. It's just levity. It's just a, it's just a little bit of a style choice, I guess. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't further the plot at all. It just breaks up the, the plot a little bit. And it kind of, I think it also serves to make you. I'm trying to think of the best way to word this. It just kind of adds to things or reasons why you might think that Matt Damon is just a little bit of a screcka. Like, you just yeah. don't. Yeah. You kind of want that they want you to think that DiCaprio is cool, and they want you to think that Matt Damon's character is kind of this, like, straight-laced little rat. And that's kind of what he is. And I think that that is a, kind of a way to stylize him in that way, in a, in a kind of a humorous light. I don't think it's meant to be. It's not. It's not a very serious plot element. The best, uh, I think the best use of it is when Alec Baldwin and him are having that discussion about getting married, and Alec Baldwin tells him that getting married is great for your career because it tells everybody that you're, you're like, well put together, your life's on track, that someone can stand you, and that your dick works, and then Matt, <laughs> Matt Damon immediately, like, does the most insecure thing ever, which is like, <laughs> yeah, it, was, it works all right, working overtime, and you're just like, uh, okay, man, like, <laughs> unnecessary, but we get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the first like uh kind of the first like major operation so uh, obviously Costigan is is successful in working his way into Frank Costello's organization. He does this by going into a corner store that's being shaken down by two Italian guys uh for money and he just like beats the dog shit out of these two Italian guys from the north end. Um this catches Frank Costello's attention. Um again, this is kind of why I think he's uh in some ways, like a definite homage to Whitey Bulger. Like Whitey Bulger was very famous for this, like seeing a young guy on the rise who like was willing to get incredibly violent very quickly and being like, you got something I like, like I'm going to bring you in into my, my inner circle. So, um, he also is like, originally he's kind of trying the approach of like doing Coke deals with his shitty cousin, who I think is such a funny character, like just such a shithead scumbag. And that like does not work out at all. But Frank Costello is basically like, you're going to stop doing coke deals with your shithead cousin, and you're going to come work for me. He's like, okay, cool. So the first kind of operation where Damon is pursuing Costello and Costigan is involved with Costello is this um, 
thing where they've stolen a bunch of microprocessors from a company uh, in Cambridge, and they're going to sell them to the Chinese government. Um, and so they are attempting to, like, Costigan is, is in on this operation. All their cell phones have been turned off, but he keeps his on. He lets Queen know the deal's going down. This alerts Matt Damon's character to the fact that there is a mole, like, directly. So he, he now narrows the mole down to, like, it's someone who is with Frank Costello at this particular location. So over the course of the plot, like, they both are slowly able to eliminate who this could possibly be. We see this happen over and over again with both sides of the equation. Right. Um, and meanwhile, again, that they're both, they're both kind of, like, interacting romantically and professionally with uh, the same woman. Um, so... Costigan is talking to Queen and, and begins telling him, like, not only is the mole it, within the state, he's an important piece of, like, the plot and his mission, it's also a direct danger to him, right? Because, like, if the person within the state, finds out who Costigan is, he's going to tell Costello and Costigan's going to get killed. So Costigan begins devoting a lot of his efforts to, like, figuring out via Costello who his rat is. And he follows Costello to this porn theater uh, where he meets up with Matt Damon because they know that they won't be like <laughs> like casually surveilled while they're in this porn theater. And he gets really close to seeing Matt Damon at this point. This is like the closest they come to interacting before, uh, you know, the, at the end of the movie. Um, so he follows him there. He witnesses uh, he witnesses him giving whoever the mole is uh, this envelope and inside that envelope are all the like identifications of all of Costello's guys who the mole will uh, obviously run through the police database and see who was ever a police officer at any point, or at least is known to the police department that will help them narrow down who the rat is. So Queen tells him to like follow him. uh, And obviously Matt Damon realizes he's being followed and he attempts to hide around this corner and, like, stab Costigan when he comes around the corner. But he accidentally ends up stabbing and murdering this restaurant worker. So now the stakes are even higher. <laughs> like, he's done a... An Asian restaurant worker, which is probably an ode to what Scorsese did when he whitewashed this film. <laughs> dude, so it, it is a dark scene, though, because you're like, damn, dude, he's now, like, just murdered a random civilian and just peaced out on it. Um, so Sullivan tries to cross-reference Costigan's picture because uh, he sees it through this security footage um, against the police officer database, but he can't recognize anybody. So at this point, uh, they are getting closer and closer together, and Queenan ends up in a situation where he goes toward he goes to this abandoned building to meet up with Costigan, but. Sullivan realizes that Queenan's going to meet with his mole, so he sends his guys there, and they end up throwing Queenan off the roof. So Martin Sheen dies at this point, which just which like, was totally unexpected and crazy to me because the whole thing where he was like, "I'm just going to wait here because they're not going to kill the police chief." He he felt very yeah. secure in the fact that they can't they could kill the mole, but they're not going to kill a police chief. You know that's just like hanging around with his badge, and sure enough, they do. It was crazy. Yeah. So they so they murder they murder him. And not only is that bad from a just like emotional standpoint, but that's like one of only two people that know who Costigan is. And the other one right. is Dignum, who is a dick. So uh, Sullivan, Matt Damon's character, immediately tries to leverage this and is like, 
oh, we got to we got to avenge him. Like, you got to give me access to his undercovers. I got to know who these guys are. Uh, And Dignam, like, freaks out. He attacks Sullivan and resigns for, like, disrespecting Queen Anne. He's like, I'm never fucking giving you these these guys identities. But at this point is like another big twist in this plot, which is that Sullivan learns that Costello is an FBI informant, which also Whitey Bulger was. So obviously like that's a big touchstone of that, that plot as well. Um, And he's like, holy shit, like he's been doing all this shit, killing rats and all this stuff. And he's been ratting the whole time. And obviously Costello is like, yeah, dude, I'm taking down my own enemies with the FBI's help. Like what, what the fuck do I care? Like, fuck you. So, he decides at this point, Sullivan decides that he's eventually going to become a loose end to Costello and he's going to get, you know, thrown away. So he decides to help the Massachusetts State Police actually capture Costello. Um, so they go to this big cocaine deal. There's a huge gunfight and most of Costello's crew dies. And Sullivan finally confronts Costello about being an FBI mole. Costello lies or laughs at him and he's like, yeah, of course, I don't give a shit about ratting. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here to survive. I don't give a fuck about the rules. They don't apply to me. And Sullivan's basically like, you're a fucking rat and, and shoots him. So Costello and Queenan are both dead. Like these two, like aged police and criminal who have like been at war with one another in the shadows for like decades are gone. The whole point of this whole thing started is yeah. they're all both dead. Yeah. And so, and so now that it's all over, uh, Sullivan is like, okay, the last loose end I need to tie up is like, I got to get this guy to come out. So he sends, he calls Queenan's phone, which Costigan still has. And he's like, hey, you know, it's, it's Sergeant Sullivan from the <laughs> state police. Like, you should come, uh, come out of the cold. We got to get you paid and we got to like, you know, make sure you're okay and everything. Great, great moment right there, by the way. I love that, it, you know, because this movie has so many moments where it's these, fast moving shots with like we said music playing in the background and a lot of jibber jabber over the music and scenes changing quickly but that was one scene where there was no music and it was just a close up of DiCaprio staring at the ringing phone and it ringed for not just like 3 or 4 rings it ringed for like 12 rings and he's just staring at it and you've got Damon on the other end waiting and there and it it lets this scene simmer for like 35 seconds. It's just like, do I pick up the phone? Do I pick up the phone? Is he going to pick up the phone? And then he does it, and, you're, and they both just sit there silently waiting for the other one to talk. And it was, uh, yeah, and then he ends up hanging up the phone. And I I think you and I are, and most audience members, when that phone is ringing, we're like, dude, don't pick up the phone. Yeah, absolutely Don't not. pick up the do phone. Do not pick up the phone. Yeah. Um, so he, he does end up going in and meeting with Sullivan. Sullivan figures out who Costigan is finally and erases his records. So he's like gone. Like at this point, Costigan has no safety net of any kind. No one, Dignam's gone and no one in the department knows who he is. So he's fucked. But Costigan notices on his desk, that envelope that says like, uh, what word did they write on it? Citizens. And they spelled it incorrectly. Um, and so he's like, Oh my gosh, Sullivan is the mole. So he gets all these tapes that, because Costello recorded all the conversations he ever had, because obviously he was an FBI informant and he like wanted to have his own, you know, security insurance. He gets all these tapes of Sullivan and Costello talking, basically implicating Sullivan as the mole, and gives them to uh, Madeline Madden, who is obviously Sullivan's now like live-in girlfriend who is pregnant by him. She hears the tapes, she's disgusted, and she leaves him. And so now, like, both of them have kind of lost all their connections to, like, the world that they love. Um, 
Costigan arranges to meet with Sullivan on this rooftop where Queenan died and is like, hey, like I've got the tapes. I can fucking burn you whenever I want. So Sullivan shows up and Costigan arrests him and he calls uh, Trooper Brown, played by Anthony Anderson, who's a guy that he was in the academy with. So he's trying to find someone who will like right. vouch for the fact something. that he was a cop. Yeah. Right. So Trooper Brown shows up. And he's like, hey, man, it's me. You know who I am. But Brown pulls a gun on him and is like, look, dude, I haven't seen you in like <laughs> two years. You're saying you're a cop undercover. I know this is my boss, so I don't know what you're doing here. But he's right. able to like kind of talk him down. Everything's chill. They take the elevator down. You're like, damn, it's finally going to be. A-. And at, on the elevator ride down, Matt Damon goes, just fucking kill me. Just fucking kill me. And uh DiCaprio's response is so awesome. He goes, I am fucking killing you. It's so great. So great. So then, oh man, this movie, the last like 20 minutes are just like twist after twist. The elevator doors open and everyone looks to the door and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio just instantly gets domed, just shot directly in the forehead. So does Anthony Anderson. You're like, what the fuck? Matt Damon looks out the door it's this guy that has been another detective in the state police department the entire time. That's had like and two if, lines. You just yeah, barely if, see him in the periphery. And if you go back and once you know what you know, the whole plot to the movie, if you go back to at the very beginning, this guy comes up to Damon and is like, so he made the plane coast straight out the gate. And he goes, yeah, I did. And he's like, that's perfect. So you can tell he's like a knowing smile in on it. He reveals that he is also a mole by Costello. He's like, you think you were the only guy Costello had on the inside? She's like, okay, we're going to get this all cleaned up, blah, blah, blah. But Damon is now at this point in total damage control mode. He's like, no one that knows that I was the mole can fucking live. So the, this dude that just saved him, like, turns his back. Damon picks up Leonardo DiCaprio's gun and just domes his own boy from, like, a foot away. Then he calls the cops. He's like, oh, my God, this whole thing happened. This dude freaked out. He then kind of ins- – he uh, he implicates this guy. Uh, I'm trying to remember what this guy's name is. Um, the guy that saved him? Yeah, the guy that saved him. I can't remember what that dude's name was. Trooper Berrigan. Sorry. Sean Berrigan. So he implicates Berrigan as the mole because he was a mole. He was just – there were two of them. And it seems like Damon's going to end up winning the whole thing. He like, we're kind of in the total denouement of the movie. He goes to Costigan's funeral. We watch the whole like, blessed be the souls of the dearly departed, which is kind of like the, you know, the namesake of the film. They use it twice in two funeral scenes in this movie. Uh, Once at Billy Costigan's mother's funeral, and then one in in this scene. And so uh, we see Sullivan like go attend the funeral. Then he goes out and gets some groceries and he comes home to his apartment, which like overlooks like federal Hill and like he's balling out. He's finally made it. He opens the door to his home and in his house, he looks down at the floor and there's plastic sheeting all over everything. And he goes, Oh no. And he looks up and it's Mark Wahlberg Dignam dressed like head to toe in like PPE gear. He puts and he pulls up like a mask so that like no fiber of his DNA is going to get anywhere in this apartment. And he just shoots him directly in the head with a silenced pistol, walks out. And the last shot of the movie is we look out that window, that view that he loved so much. And this rat runs across the the railing of the apartment. And that's the end of the movie. I love the style. Fucking beautiful, dude. Like the whole thing. And it's just like so gratifying that he doesn't get away with it because he's such a prick. You're just like, yes, thank God, dude. Dignan was here. So 
I guess we're to understand that Dignum got the tapes from uh, either from Costigan somehow or from Madeline, like by some. He, he figures out that Sullivan's the rat and he shows up there and whacks his ass. That's so. what I thought, but I did have a question around that. Is it possible that the ending is actually that that he was also a mole? That there was three moles? And that he did to Damon what Damon did to the other guy? I guess the only thing with that is, like, Costigan did a tremendous amount of damage to Frank Costello's organization. I I can't imagine he would, you know what I mean? Like, Dignum was so close to that situation. I don't imagine that Costello would have ever let DiCaprio into the organization if he knew who he was from the jump, you know what I mean? He let him really close. Um so I, I like to I like to believe that could be the case, but I like to I think believe that correct. Dignum's the good I guy. I like to believe that yeah, Dignum's a good correct. guy, and he got his hands on the tapes, and he knows that Sullivan's the bad guy. So yeah, he gets whacked carrying a bag of groceries back into his like way too expensive apartment. the The scene where he buys the apartment from the real estate agent, where he's like, "So you're a a police officer, state police detective? Yeah, cool. Are you like a a married yeah, like state a police detective. Yeah, yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah, he's like, like, I got a co-signer. Oh, cool. This? So you, you you have a usual house guest. That's that's totally cool. Like insinuating that he's gay on top of it all, like so great. <laughs> like, oh man, the the writing in this movie, it, the dialogue. I know that we sometimes just blanket say the dialogue is great. I think what I liked about the dialogue here is there's great one-liners with cleverness, but each character has their own personality you know too many movies will have every character has the same sense of humor every character is clever in their own way but in this movie you have very distinct personalities that have their own great lines um jack nicholson's character famously is nuts uh matt damon's character is very self-conscious and that plays yeah, into super a lot insecure. of his lines dicaprio yeah. is frazzled the entire time i love you know alec baldwin and mark Wahlberg kind of play the really clever boston cops that always have great dingers you know that's kind of their thing and so you know that the script for this movie was incredibly fun to write uh i did touch for a second on the crazy lines for jack nicholson um he had two great i mean he had phenomenal lines and moments throughout this film but the two that I thought were great was, you know, the, first of all, the really famous one where he talks about to to Bill or William about the the rat. It's like I got a rat festering, and does like the rat intim, uh, imitation. That's just you know that he very Jack Nicholson. That something that he, he would love to him do like in, talking in, shit in, to those two priests where he walks up to their table and he's like, "Fathers, do we remember the conversation that we had? A la little boys sucking on their peckers. <laughs> like, God, dude, you're like, this man is, he fully owns, he like, he is the mayor of Southie, right? Like, he, he, has, he has no fear, respects no one above himself. He feels complete security walking the streets of Boston. I think my favorite line in this movie, by far, is a line that it was ad-libbed. And it was a line that Jack Nicholson had lived. And it happened at the very beginning of the movie because it is it. This is a great line because it 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 stylizes the movie and it shows some of the dark humor that's going to be involved. It describes Jack Nicholson's character and personality and how he views violence and his kind of nonchalant nature towards when other people are getting hurt. It does all of that in one simple line. 
And that is the line that happens in the first like three minutes of the film when it shows Jack Nicholson execute somebody that's begging for their life. And all he does is he turns to the person next to him and goes, he fell funny. Yeah, she she fell. He shoots his wife, the dude on top of his wife, and he goes, he fell funny. You're like, God, dude. Oof. And he was like, uh, it, Frenchie and him have the most disturbing relationship because every time they've done like some like execution, it's always super sadistic. He's like, I thought it was very, very nice of you to ask him what hand he jerked off with. And then he has the guy's hand in a bag under the table. Like, super fucked up. And then yeah. he pulls the hand out of the bag, takes the wedding ring off the finger, and he goes, give this to his wife. And he goes, oh, and he's like, she'll be devastated. And he goes, as I recall, she ain't too sentimental. You're like, damn, dude. <laughs> like, yeah. He is a great... He is a great villain. He's a great villain, and, and it's, it is because of his, his little one-liners and his absolute just... He does not give a shit about anybody he kills. And it's, and it, it's, it's great because he's not like... Uh, like so, you know, in Goodfellas or whatever, sometimes in Scarface, it's very... Um, like, they'll have these anger outbursts, and that's what makes them intimidating, or like Scarface, and that, that's what makes them scary. But in this film... It's a guy that will smile at you and say the most sadistic thing in the world, and you've seen him do sadistic things, and you know that at a moment's notice he could just like pull out a knife and chop off, you know, William's hand, right? Yeah, You're kind of waiting for, sure. for that shoe to drop the entire film. Is when is he going to find out who DiCaprio is that he's the mole? Well, that first scene of him and William, where he like slides up next to him at the bar, and he's like, "Do you know who I am?" And he like kind of has this like very nice like kind of casual conversation with him then they take him in the back and he's like gestures for him to let me see your arm he's this broken hand and he like turns it over a couple times looks at it real gingerly and then just breaks the cast on the the pool table and starts beating the broken hand with a shoe like a a steel-toed work boot he's like are you gonna stop doing coke deals with your shit fuck rat cousin like dude he jack nicholson turns in an all-time performance the, the the big three in this that are like on the cover of the movie, DiCaprio, Damon, and Nicholson, all just turned in just incredible performances. Um, I would almost say there's not a main character in this movie. Like I think technically it's DiCaprio Leo. or, I would or say he, Damon. He, he, he play, well, he's the he is the protagonist that we most closely follow. So I, I view yeah. him as the yeah. main character. But so, you're right. He is. There is no real. Uh, like absolute true main POV, right? But yeah, I think he's the protagonist. Because I'm almost because I'm kind of surprised that uh, no one from this movie. This is the only like major category where they didn't get an Oscar nod. So they got a they got a best picture, which they won. Best director, which they won. Um, and they got a best supporting actor, uh, which they didn't win, but Mark Wahlberg got nominated for. Um. But they didn't get he, a nomination. He wouldn't deserve that. That's not. No, I don't no. Know. He, he did. He did, a, he did a great job, but that's not best supporting actor worthy. But I'm. I'm like kind of shocked that like Jack Nichols. Like they couldn't. Almost because of the structure of this movie, it's like they couldn't put any of those three in for best actor, and they couldn't put any of the three in for best supporting either. Which I think they could have right. made a run for. You know what I mean? Like Jack right. Nicholson could have made a run for best supporting with this role. But it's almost like he was too big a deal in the movie. <laughs> it's like he couldn't; they couldn't make a the case for it. 
Um, and like I yeah. said, like Leonardo DiCaprio got uh, a Best Actor nomination this year, but it was for Blood Diamond and not for The Departed, which is crazy because I would say that this is a, a, a better movie than Blood Diamond. It is a better movie, but I think his role in Blood Diamond was a better job acting. He, he did both. He did incredible, incredible in both. Don't get me wrong, but he uh, he mastered a very difficult accent in Blood Diamond. South Africa is not a, not an easy one. the The scene in particular where he is at his psychiatrist and he's losing his mind and he's like threatening to kill himself that's that's the best acting in the entire movie. It's so I good because uh, when when she's like she comes out after him and she's like. Tells him she wants him to come back, and she gives him the prescription for twenty lorazepam, and he's like, "Is that enough to kill myself?" And, he's like, and she's like, "Maybe." And he goes, "Great. Why don't you write me a prescription for a bottle of scotch and a handgun so I can blow my fucking brains out?" You're like, "Holy fuck, dude! Like this guy's on the edge, man." And the scene where he's in Costello's apartment, and he the whole hand cut off scene and he goes to the bathroom and he like opens the window so he can rip the wire off and just like drop it into the bay down below because he's so scared that they're gonna find it and just kill him right there it was like oh man dude i'm like sweating watching this yeah great great job intention i think this movie does uh one more thing that i i guess we kind of touched on is just the music and the style of the some of the shots that he does. It may, there are so many scenes in this movie that if you don't know that, if you don't know, if you never watched The Departed and you turned on this movie in different parts of the movie, you would not know that they're the same movie. Like I talked about, like compare the scene where DiCaprio is talking to his psychiatrist and they're playing that kind of laissez-faire song that doesn't really fit the really heated de- debate and yelling at each other they're having. Yeah. You compare that scene to the scene where it's playing suspenseful music and DiCaprio is chasing Damon down the alley and they're doing a lot of like Dutch angles and quick movements and the it, it it's almost like Scorsese used every kind of technique to film and every kind of song you could possibly imagine throughout this film and it creates a lot of different styles. It kind of reminded me of a of an episode that we did uh, a few months ago when we did Any Given Sunday. Where yeah. there's moments in this movie where you're just like, this is so stylized that it's adding to the confusion a little bit. That's like one the, thing that the I the comfortably would, known I even... scene where it's like the montage of like red tinted shots of them doing like blow and he's having sex with the 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 therapist and mean it keeps interspersing this like really romantic like love making scene between DiCaprio and the girl with uh Jack Nicholson having a three-way with two prostitutes, and at one point he throws a big handful of cocaine on the bed and goes, don't come up until you're numb. <laughs> you're like, holy yeah. God, dude, man. Exactly. That, I think that's the, probably the best scene that, that outlines what I'm talking about, is there's moments in this movie where uh, they get away with stuff that, you know, if the movie itself wasn't so great and the story wasn't so great, it couldn't have gotten away with it. If, if more of the movie was like that, this movie would be a lot less like The Departed, more like Fearing and Loathing in Las Vegas, where you're just like, what the fuck am I watching right now? So Absolutely. They get away with it because it's so inter- it's so interdispersed into the rest of the story, but there was moments where I was just like, this is a lot. So that's like one negative, I guess, that I had, but it, it you know, they, they pull it off. You want to read some bad, bad takes? Yeah, I only was able to find like two, because uh, this is a universally beloved movie. It's got a, like a 94 on Rotten Tomatoes. The two that I found that I really like are one person who this person thinks they're a real genius for figuring out that this movie's related to internal affairs. Uh, Scorsese's films almost never disappointed me, but this one did. 
Um, a smart spy, spy thriller with great music and acting that manages to maintain suspense. However, this is very unoriginal because it ripped off almost all its plot twists and details from a Hong Kong movie called Internal Affairs. Like, yeah, man. <laughs> like, a remake. Yes. Yeah, dude. Like, you literally could have figured that out by, like, listening to an interview with the director. So he gave it two stars. And then my personal favorite, um, this movie epitomizes the cultural and moral decline of America. It has no artistic value. It is just a long string of blood and murder. It relies on some very cheesy cliches. First, not only is it a cop movie, but it's a cop versus cop movie. How boring. Second, buckets of blood. Gross. Third, they loaded it up with some of the best male actors in the world and got them to regurgitate a million F-bombs as well as more cliches. Come on, man. Fourth, which they spelled wrong. They spelled fourth, F-O-R-T-H. Throw in some romance. Bye-bye story. Ugh. How did critics and public accept this garbage? One star. Yeah, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the only people that wouldn't like this movie are people that wouldn't like the violence or the language. Like, if you have a moral obligation to it, I, at that at that point, it's just like, man, you must just like hate like half of all media. Like, you must just yeah, yeah. think that most media is terrible. Like, because I I guess for me, my issue with that is that it's like, what do you think real? police work and like intense murder investigations and stuff are like like the idea that like no we should never create art that reflects like the darkest and most intense aspects of human existence is crazy to me that everything should just be the teletubbies like that sucks that would be awful so yeah bad take in my opinion like i get it that like it's not for everyone and I totally understand, like, that's not the kind of movie I like to watch, but to be like, this movie has no artistic value, that's where I draw the line. It's like, okay, now you're speaking in objective terms, and it's not. You're being incredible. Yeah, it's the number one thing we hate on this podcast is the people that that try to shroud their opinion in a fact, and they say, this objectively sucks, and then they list opinions. (laughs) This objectively sucks. Everything's blue, and it's the worst color. Like, oh, okay. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, They didn't like the violence. And they so that they said the whole film sucks, which I guess my question there is there's not much violence in the beginning of the movie, which tells me this person had to have watched a lot of it. So when they watched a lot of it and there wasn't a lot of violence, did they still hate what they saw? Did they? Yeah. Right. Like, why did they keep watching it? You know, if, if you because, you know, within the first 10 minutes of the movie, there's not violence, but there's a lot of well, I guess there is one execution. Right. But it doesn't show a ton of blood or anything. And then it has a lot of language in it. So if the language is a problem, then again, turn it off in five minutes. I don't, yeah. Yeah. Don't subject yourself to this whole thing. If it's that traumatic for you, you know what I mean? So also look at the actors like Jack Nicholson in a Scorsese. You think that's going to not have language in it. I don't know. Scorsese in general, dude, like what movie has Scorsese made where you were expecting it to be not filled with like (laughs) F bombs and buckets of blood, dude. Like that's the movies he makes. Like, come on. He's a crime guy. Like, it's literally why they make ratings. They make ra- you know rated R for for intense language. All right, see that. Yeah. Know that that's not for you, and then don't turn it on. It's not difficult. Yeah. It's it is like that weird thing you see where people will be like, took my kid to see you know <laughs> this rated R movie, inappropriate for children. You're like, well, yeah, it's kind of a you problem, man. <laughs> like, um, what, what yeah, do we like, give this? Oh man, like this is a ten for me. I gotta say, um, I 
I do think this is like, like I said, it's it's a it's a genre defining movie. It's going to be, it is easily up there in the conversation with, you know, one of the best movies by one of the best directors of our era, one of the best oh, yeah. directors ever. Um, it's going to be always remembered as like one of the best works by three of the best actors of our generation. Um, and it's infinitely rewatchable, man. Like this is a movie I've all, I have definitely seen this movie like at least 30, if not 50 times. And I'm probably going to see it another hundred times before all is said and done. So it's a 10. I wouldn't change anything about this movie, um, for, for what it's attempting to be. And especially like, again, like, for having taken this like very slick, shallow action movie that's like all based around like gunfights and stuff like that, and turning it into this like kind of deeper, more tense psychological like character thriller, but still maintaining like a pace and action set that like keeps you really engaged, it's a masterstroke, man. It's one of it's one of Scorsese's best. So it's a ten for me. I will give it a nine point seven because I again I, we've talked about this on the pod. I really hate giving out tens. Tens to me is like understand from. From the first second to the last second, it's perfect. I want to reserve that for basically a film that's not come out yet is kind of what I think. Why do I not give it a 9.9? 9? Um, you know, I I would say there's moments in this movie that has a little bit of confusion just because of the pacing is so fast and the seat. And when they try to insert style into quick pace, it just makes it even that much more confusing. Sure. Uh, I thought that, again, some of the highly stylized scenes that only just go to show character and not really plot are a little bit they were a little bit much but not again not not enough to me to take off a ton of points um yeah like you said it's got some of the best actors doing some of their best acting it's got one of the best directors doing some of their best directing it's got a writer and a a a screenplay writer um didn't really go over this um william monahan listen to this guy's resume kingdom of heaven the departed body of lies god um, awesome these guys this guy's a, a banger factory and he did this is probably his best movie so it's just Dude, he did he did the departed and body of lies back to back that is me and this guy i didn't know that me and this guy were best friends but like body of lies is like my dark horse candidate for my favorite scorsese movie or my favorite uh dicaprio movie like I yeah, love Body of Lies. I, I think it's one of the most underrated, like, spy movies ever made. I think it is, like, such a cool look at modern espionage as it probably actually exists and happens. Um, yeah, I love that movie. We should do that movie sometime because I love that movie. It's a certified banger. Um, yeah, we, we will have to do that at some point. Um, I feel I, I feel like if I pulled up a list of every movie that came out in the – 2000s that i loved this would probably fall in the top three um i think the only movie that definitively i would say is better that came out in the aughts and actually it might have come out in 2010 would be the social network i i I, social network is probably one of my like top two or three favorite movies of all time uh but i think this is right up there with that it's good it's good shit yeah i yeah i'm I'm trying to think of other like that that and when did uh yeah inside of the 2000s yeah i i think you're right i i was trying to think of when i mean snow dogs with cuba getting juniors up there there you go that's that's your top three right there that's your top three right there no dude this is a masterpiece it's it's definitely 
yeah, I can't say enough great things about this movie. I love it. So I'm, I was so glad I got to watch this again. So I'll probably watch it uh, again in the coming weeks just because I enjoyed it, revisiting it so much this time around. Good stuff. We've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up the pod. We just finalized our docket for the rest of the year. We've got a bunch of things coming out, um, both in film and in television, that we're going to be going over. We've got two more novels we'll be going over, um, so be looking forward to those. Um, just kind of looking at this, we have Severance and or we're going to be doing a Marvel movie, uh, Black Panther, coming out in November, so... And we've also got our House of the Dragon season one recap. Looking forward to all that. Um, and a few more things that I think we'll keep as secrets as they roll out. So Hell yeah, man. Exciting. Um, also, shouts out to us because in two days will be the first will be the first year anniversary that we recorded our first episode. Wow. Time flies, man. Episode. Yeah. Anyways, this is Novel Discourse Podcast. If you like what you heard. Please do all of the housekeeping that every podcast in the world asks you to do. Like, subscribe, give a rating, tell two friends. We greatly appreciate all that. Like I said, this is Novel Discourse. I'm Sam. I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. Adios. Peace.